1: Well, hello and welcome to the Reds Review, your monthly audio magazine for all things Liverpool Football Club right here on the Anfield Index podcast channel. Uh, Today, we're we're here to talk about March, another positive step of progression uh, for Liverpool Football Club here in this, um, well, quite positive season, really, and a promising one at that um obviously not on my own to talk about this i've got a guest in and he's all the way from down under with sandpaper in his pocket it's one Ari- alex barillaro see uh, i said it alex without putting on the fake barillaro accent
0: <laughs> thanks thanks eddie thanks for doing that that feels very genuine as was the sandpaper comment beforehand that was <laughs> that was very much appreciated lovely um john i feel like i feel like it's been a an era since the beginning of March. I feel like it's been a month since the beginning of this whole cricket scandal with the Australian cricket team. Uh, but yeah, March has been interesting. I was saying to you before the pod, I've never, I don't think I've remembered a month that was so cruisy for Liverpool, obviously apart from the big United game. But again, there's no, one, there's no real reason to say that was necessarily out of the ordinary. It was Old Trafford. Um, so yeah, I'm glad to be on. I'm delighted to finally talk to you uh despite the fact that maybe the australian cricket team has let me down with the circumstances but that's okay we'll look past it. <laughs> we'll look past uh,
1: that well on a side note i mean sandpaper in my pocket kind of sounds a bit like an uh, alanis morissette song
0: it does it also sounds like you've got you're like uh, you say sandpaper in your pocket you're going to be looked at you like you're a loon <laughs> why, why why would you have sandpaper in your pocket it also sounds rather precarious but i uh, don't know
1: i don't know why you'd have sandpaper in your pocket so uh, i don't know either. so as as we're doing this season uh before we really get into things first of all want to meet the meet the guests get to know them a bit more so alex um how and when did you first become a liverpool fan um so uh being
0: a young liverpool fan i'm i'm still i'm 21 i kind of got into liverpool properly in the days of cue um which was the kind of the grip that got me kind of in and then fernando torres was the man that properly hooked me and wouldn't let me escape uh it's become obviously an obsession now um which is Great for me at times, bad for my mental state at times, uh, awful for my girlfriend's mental state all the time. Uh, it was always one of those things that I I always saw the club as something more than just football. Because Australia is so disconnected from the UK in terms of our game times start uh, any time, depending on the daylight savings, it could start at 9.30, the early game or the latest game could start at 5, 6, 7 a.m., so it, it becomes dedication. It becomes almost like a something you tie to, something that becomes part of your identity when you become this attached to a football club. Um, in the UK, that's fair. That, that's that's fine. You go around brandishing your scarves, doing whatever. You chat to your mates about being a football fan, and it doesn't necessarily kind of divert from the mean, divert from what's normal. Whereas in Australia, you become... It's almost, you become kind of a contrarian because obviously Australia is very dedicated to their sport, but cricket and Australian rules football, which is our national sport here, uh, it kind of dominates the sphere. Um, The Premier League has become such a global phenomenon that, yeah, there is huge interest in it now, but being a Liverpool fan growing up, it always kind of felt like a counterculture down here, which only made me want to love it more. Uh, Obviously, that meant that despite the fact that Fernando Torres was the greatest football player that I've ever seen, Uh, I did have to endure some tough times. Um, There were a lot of times in school where you'd watch the Istanbul videos going, "Uh, I I wish I was there. I wish I was old enough to appreciate it back then because when I was in school, it was the Hodgson era. It was Andy Carroll me, the record signing. It was all that fun stuff. Uh, And only now have I really been able to brandish my Liverpool fandom with some sort of glee um so being a being a Liverpool fan now and also being wanting to be part of the football media um it's finally starting to to come good in terms of being a Liverpool fan okay thank Fernando Torres for that
1: yeah uh, the Hodgson era that really does take dedication <laughs> yeah
0: it really did
1: <laughs> it took dedication for me to watch it and and that was not at uh, 3 a.m or anything like that so there you go. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, we were talking just before the pod, you know, uh, sometimes when I do this podcast, I almost forget about some of the games, particularly the ones earlier in the month. And we started this month with um, with a 2-0 win over Newcastle, and I kind of forgot about this game totally. It was, um, I guess such was the control of this game, and, and as you mentioned, you know, at times throughout this month, we were kind of in cruise control, and, and this was, I'd say, one of them victories.
0: I agree, and, but it's also one of those victories that it's not necessarily a given or a necessity, um, either either being the Rafa factor, meant that it wasn't necessarily a given, or the fact that we always seem to slip up at home against one of these sides um, every now, and between kind of February and, and late March, early April, there always seems to be a slip up. Um, so that Newcastle game could well have been the banana peel, but it seems like... This Klopp team is more aware of those banana peels, but also more aware of their own consistency than anything. I think when he took over from Rodgers, there was a wild case of just, not just inconsistency, but also you put all your effort and all your energy into City or United or Chelsea, which worked, because we did have an incredible record against the top four in the Klopp's first two seasons. Uh, But it, it came back to haunt us with results like Watford, Uh, like Burnley, start of last season. Um, Even this season, there have been Swansea and, and results like that that you can never seem to avoid. Maybe that's a Premier League thing, but I also like to think of it as a Liverpool thing because we can't have the control of City because we're such an emotional club, such an emotional team led by an emotional manager with extremely emotional fans. And that's great. Newcastle, Rafa, I think he'd come to Anfield... Maybe four. What has it been? Four times in his tenure. He um, his tenure at Newcastle and then Chelsea before that. So it was nice. It was an emotional attachment that we've got to to a former manager that you don't get to see really in this day and age. Uh, and it was as comfortable a uh, dispatching of Newcastle as you're likely to see. I thought Rafa deployed perhaps too reservedly. Like he, he definitely parked some form of vehicle in front of his goal because I think he felt he needed to. Um, whether that was too much respect, I don't think so. I think it was just... That uh, limitation. With, yeah, what seems to happen with a lot of those sides, which is, oh, it's Anfield. We better limit the damage early because if they get an early goal, then then we're screwed, which is what happened with Watford later in the month, which we we'll come to in a bit. But mm. um, I think Rafa knew better than most given the... I don't, I'm not sure if you remember, Andy, but there was... A Christmas time fixture with Manchester City, where a lot of people criticized Rafa for being too defensive because they said he was just he was just negligent in attack. He only wanted to defend. And Rafa came out and said, Well, what do you expect? This team's incredible. And then there was also the fact that Dwight Gale could have got a penalty. He also could have scored on the counter attack in the last six minutes. So I think Rafa, when he went to when he went to City or City went to Newcastle, I can't remember. Yeah, it was yeah it
1: was Newcastle home, were yeah. home. So I do recall that yeah. one. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yep, yeah, St James's <laughs> Park. He went out with the idea of I'm going to sit back, I'm going to absorb as much pressure as I can for the first 70 minutes, and then when City are tired and when the, the, the spaces start to open up, then we can snatch a point. We might be able to snatch three. Um, and that's a fair enough kind of approach from. A manager but you're relying on your team being able to defend well enough but also the luck falling in your favor which i think a lot of teams seem to do against top teams now where it's just like it's okay we'll get a bit of luck and then we'll be we'll be fine the right strike will hit the post we can counter attack liverpool this i don't know whether we've got the luck or whether we just know how to control games better Newcastle's a perfect example of that being able to control the tempo but also just locking in that cruise control button mm.
1: And, and like you say, not an awful lot to come from that game, but even less so to come from the next game, the 0-0 draw at home to Porto. I mean, this was this game really was a non-entity. For Porto, it was about, um, let, let's not have another embarrassing night uh, for Liverpool. It's pretty much job done. Let's just see it through. You know, a five, 5-0 5 win away from home was was magnificent. And the 0-0 at home was just two teams... <laughs> just there was 90 minutes had to be played, so we're just going to play them.
0: Yeah, it was going through the motions, wasn't it? It was very much just a case of um, put the teams out, know that the results are already secured, either way, see what happens in terms of a bit of pride. There is, though, it does spark an interesting discussion, which I, I've kind of written about in a certain way in, the, in my next piece, which is looking at players from below the Premier League top six Liverpool could possibly target, which is are the backups that we've got now good enough for a team that wants to challenge for the title. So Ings, Solanke up front, there's no real backup to the wings because I, I rate Oxlade-Chamberlain as a midfielder, but then you've got Oxlade-Chamberlain, I guess you count Lallana, uh Obviously, Milner rotates. Is that enough for, for a side that wants to challenge for the title?
1: Um, well, I would say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and that's... <clears throat> And, and I guess that's it, you know, in games like this, when you one rotate and maybe finish teams off, but it's not just about a, a game like this where you can actually afford to rotate. I guess it's it's coming into big games where you maybe don't have the luxury of your, you know, your first, your your preferred players in certain positions, because we have, we've got to say, we have been a touch wood on this as well. Up to this point, we've been fairly fortunate this season with injuries, so... Yeah, I think it's probably, would you say, next season is when that's going to come into play more?
0: I'd hope so. Um, and, and spoiler alert, one of the players that I do say, um, or I do mention in my article, uh, five players from outside the top six Liverpool for target, is Marco Anatovic, because I think we need that class of player. Maybe not. Maybe it's not even him, but it's that class of player who is good enough to come in when your your main man's injured. And, okay, you might need to tweak you might need to rotate certain facets of your formation, whether you switch to a, you could switch to a 4-4-2, a 4, sorry, a as Klopp did against West Ham earlier in the season. You could swap Salah up front and then, and put a winger if say Firmino's injured. I do think that the Porto game was a nice kind of indicator of, okay, we've still got a fair ways to go here because as good as Dom Solanke was at the under 21 World Cup or under 19 World Cup, uh, there is still a long way to go in his progression. That's not to say we should give up on him. It's just to say that he's not ready now to be the man that we need. And Danny Ings, look, as good as he was at Burnley, he, there are goals that he used to score at Burnley that come directly from attacks and that just fall to him in the box, where he, he was that, I hate, the, I hate this word, but fox in the box. And that, that poacher where... Uh, it's almost kind of you need that luck but you also need to be in the right spaces injury or not Ings clearly doesn't have the luck and I'm not sure he's got the movement I, I don't want to write him off now but if Danny Ings is our backup to Roberto Firmino going down the three-week calf injury and the series of games like this month's happens I don't see his cruise controlling our way through it um, I just don't see it being that easy
1: no I think that's there's a very fair point and it kind of comes in nicely, I think, for the next one as well. You know, losing 2-1 away at Man United, at Old Trafford. Not, you know, obviously great rivals and, you know, hate losing to them. Not not the end of the world, given, given everything in full perspective. For me, though, the, this game, I mean, like you mentioned there, the ability to change things up and do something a bit different. We don't really have that luxury yet because, for me, this game was about two things. Poor defending in the first half, and our inability to really do anything different because the the tactics of of Mourinho were quite clear that it was you know that long direct ball diagonal ball to try and really target the the weaker side of our defence which was Lovren and Trent Alexander and it was in that area that they were targeting us defensively that they they did very well and then in in to restrict us was you know it, it was a lot of praise and plaudits went to Ashley Young. But I think it wasn't just Ashley Young. It was what they really did was they crowded out Salah. There was uh, Nemanja Matic who was over that side of the pitch. They they moved a lot of players in and around him. As soon as Salah had the ball, he had three players around him. So I think, uh, you know, it almost exposed us for our inability to really vary things and change it up and bring somebody else in or do something a bit different because they targeted our weakness and they really mitigated our our threat
0: yeah i agree entirely with that i think it was um almost inevitable that whoever scored first would assert control because i don't think you can crowd out Salah like that with your down one nil you just don't have the players or the resources to do that in the same way you're up one nil you can focus on the opposing teams kind of made weapons which mourinho is famous for fair enough and you can also kind of, yeah, like you said, mitigate for situations that, that will cause your team harm. It was almost it was almost the reminder that as good as Klopp's progression has been, and it has been fantastic um, in dealing with um, what Simon Brundish likes to call the dross, uh, in dealing with top teams where Rodgers used to have a terrible record, Klopp has now kind of made this system that's perfect for fighting, fighting these all-out battles against top six clubs. But those are those games that we can win, the all-out battles, the ones that are going back and forth where every player is involved. When we play Manchester United, we're not in an all-out battle. We're in guerrilla warfare because it has to it has to be ground out. It has to be done dirtily because that's the way Marino works, the way he operates. He's beaten teams that way all of his career, and perhaps it hasn't had the same exclamation point as it done now, he's almost become a caricature of himself, but Mourinho is still this dangerous manager when he wants to be. Now, I'm not saying Old Trafford was a awful result, because in the grand scheme of things, it was probably the one we could take, but there, there were a couple of kind of tactical facets that that showed up when we had to deal with the fact that our main main, not even creators, but our main attacking weapons were just dried up, because again, they couldn't get any service. Uh, I think a creative midfielder, someone for me, it'd be Thomas Lamar or Tommy Lamar, if we're going exotic. Um, uh, there's also been shouts for Jorginho who acts deeper, but plays similarly uh, in terms of being able to feed low uh, incisive passes to a front three. For me, Thomas Lamar would be playing centrally. It, it, it raised the discussion of who could come in to bolster this team, which obviously means the Klopp's team is not perfect. Uh, the United game was a nice reminder that, yeah, Klopp's not perfect. This team's still good. This front three still electric, as we saw in the, the Watford game. But there is always going to be those managers who look to frustrate. And if we want to challenge Guardiola, I think we need more creativity because there, there is a path to start out the the front three of Firmino, Salah and Mane, who do rely on counter-attacks and spaces. But there's also a need for more composure at the back. Uh, and I think as good as Van Dyke is, Matip and Lovren aren't the partners he needs right now. I think that's pretty clear for everyone to see now. Who the partner is, is up for debate because we haven't been linked strongly to any other centre-backs. The rides off to Inter. Um, whether or not you get a ball-playing centre-back or a physical centre-back. Would be the difference between getting someone like... Not that either of these should be targeted, but the difference between getting someone like uh, Harry Maguire, who can bring the ball out, and James Tarkovsky, who's very physical. I'm not... Again, do not crucify me. I'm not saying that any either of those should be targeted. It's just the profile. Um, Van Dyke definitely needs, for me, someone to, to back him up and sweep along when he brings the ball out, because as of right now, as we saw in the Palace game, he is... Our most creative player centrally, and that's a problem.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, you mentioned the Watford game, I mean that was up next. 5-0. <clears throat> this was just a more Salah show, wasn't it?
0: It was a it was an exhibition of who of the man that should be the player of the season. Um, he's leading the golden boot now, thanks to Kane's injury. I think he probably would have overtaken him anyway. It was a just a it was one of those games where you look at it like Suarez used to have and Gerrard and Torres both used to have, where you look at the game itself and you almost can't, you can't analyze it. You can't just, you just look at a look at the game and go, that is a player who's taken a game by the scruff of the neck and just made it his. And it's brilliant that we've got a player like that. It's, it's phenomenal that Michael Edwards and, and Jurgen Klopp were able to do a relatively cheap deal for a man who many doubted and, for that to come up Trump so much, because it's just, he's been absolutely phenomenal. That goal where he turns, I want to say five watching players, I might be exaggerating slightly, um, and the finish that is so unconventional and mistimed, you'd think, and yet creeps past the goalkeeper. its It was incredible. It was just absolutely fantastic to watch. And it's, again, one of the games where you, at the end of the season, we're going to sit back and we're going to go, okay, Mohamed Salah is brilliant why
1: watch that yeah yeah he's, he's, he has been magnificent uh, and i'm sure as we get to our monthly awards we will um, we will be talking about him again oh, <laughs> not, not by way of a spoiler alert or anything but <laughs> 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 but right to round up the month then results wise um this past weekend uh 2-1 Win a way to Crystal Palace. A bit of a bogey team, bit of a bogey ground. Um, one of them potential banana skins again with the manager. Um, I, I, I'd say, Alex, that they almost took a leaf out of Mourinho's book here in terms of the the, the tactic of of trying to really sort of pick at our defence. It was a long diagonal ball aimed at that space in between the right centre back and the right uh, and our right full back. Uh, again, exposing Trent Alexander-Arnold for his defensive deficiencies, and and I think, given his age and his inexperience of playing in that position, it's understandable. It's going to be, you know, it's a tough learning curve for him. What I would say in his defense is, you know, but in both games where he's been exposed there recently, Man United and Palace, he's had an awful first half, but he's come back positively in the second half. So there's good signs for him, but. I do think he really needs to learn from this and be a bit more proactive because that that first half was was a concern, that the way they were targeting him and, and the way Zaha was kind of getting inside him all the time.
0: Yeah, I think it was um, another... In the same way that Salah's four goal haul at Watford was an exhibition for how incredibly good he is and what an incredible talent we've got in our hands, I do think the Palace game, despite the victory, was an almost... I don't want to say exhibition because it's the connotation it has. It was kind of just a reminder that Trent is a kid, but also people kept saying with every good performance, "Oh, look at the mature head on this kid! Look at the mature head on this kid!" And that's I think that's something of a fallacy. I think it's kind of not true um, because we've seen him be exposed so often this season with that exact thing. Where I, I'm not sure if it's because he's he's overloading so much and because he's being told to. Go up, but there was a point in the game where Klopp was shouting and him, berating him for hiding on the right wing uh, and not giving an option for the pass. And it go, it went to it went to show that yes, yeah, sometimes young players can let bad performances overcome them. And then he came out in the second half, and yeah, he was a lot better, but he still made positional mistakes that let Zaha through. There was even one in the last few minutes where Zaha was able to get to the byline and and nearly carve out something. Again, it's one of those games where, in retrospect, people will say, okay, it was a banana pin, a banana banana skin that was kind of precariously avoided by Liverpool. The reality is if Christian Benteke could score, we probably would have lost that game. Uh, He's missed the most key chances out of any non-top-four striker this season. He is just out of form, dramatically... Um, he hasn't been the same I think since he left Liverpool because let's not forget for us he did score a fair few goals uh, yeah, it still in terms has big of big
1: chances as well though
0: yeah exactly and, and that's the thing is big chances seemed to have been his his hallmark at Villa because he always used to come up in those big games especially against us. he used to score loads he used to make Martin Skrtle look foolish now with the numbers that you're seeing with regarding just the amount of big chances he's missing and the amount of goals he scored in relation to that, you, you can see where Palace's problems lie. Zaha is another one of the players in my article. Um, for him to do to Trent, kind of what he does do to a lot of mid, a lot of right fullbacks rather is uh, it makes me kind of say, okay, maybe Trent isn't that bad because it's in, it's in Zaha's wheelhouse to creep behind, a fullback, or kind of go between him and the centre back, and just completely disorient them, especially with the ball at his feet. However, you can't say anything other than Alexander Arnold kind of failed in that first half because he did let him through for the first chance. The Karius save, which I thought was an excellent save. Uh, I don't think Mihaly comes out to that chance. Karius is quite proactive for the penalty. He tries to do the same thing, but obviously the balls at different angles and different heights, and Zaha loops it over him. Um,
1: just on that penalty then, I know Carrius has got some criticism for coming out and what's he doing there and all the rest of it, but I think he has to come out because if he doesn't, Zaha is able to take the ball down. He'll get criticised for not coming out and closing him down. He forced Zaha into first time trying to finish and he missed. So hence why he wasn't sent off because he didn't deny a goal-scoring opportunity because the shot had already been taken. So, I, you know, as much as... he. You, you could maybe say, all right, he should have come so far and stopped and, and not actually conceded the penalty. But where where do you stand on the whole thing with Karius then on that penalty?
0: I prefer my keepers to proactive all the time, especially for a top six club. Um, it, You could label the same, or you could label it even worse for Edison coming out against, against Liverpool, clearing it straight to Mohamed Salah, who then scored. It's the ideas behind it. That make all the good things happen that you don't notice. Ie, carries coming out to punch a ball or to clear something, or staying ten yards further outside of his further from his goal than Mignolet does, meaning he can be he he can get the pass when Van Dyke's pressurized. Um, it's the idea that is kind of the important thing for me, which is good. Uh, obviously it leads to... I don't even think it was that much of a mistake because I didn't see what else he can do there. Like you said, Zaha takes the ball down. That's that's an f- open finish. He can just curl it around Karius. Karius was playing the high performance... Oh, the high performance. The high percentage kind of... I've got a better chance of saving it if it's bobbing up in front of him and he has to chip me, uh, but at the risk of perhaps taking him out if I'm too aggressive. Okay, he was too aggressive. He made a rash decision he still had the idea of being proactive and that's important for me because I think years and years of Mignolet uh has kind of affected us to the point where any goalkeeping blunder is the mistake of the goalkeeper rather than the mistake of what we're trying to get him to do and that's just wrong we're trying to get carries to be proactive we wanted to come out um and again it's poor defending it's a flick on header over the top uh, and, and like I was saying earlier, we need another centre back to put next to Van Dijk. I think because Matip, despite being good on the ball, wasn't very good when it came to Benteke moving forward and then playing Zaha in. So it's it's a slippery slope with this defence because you've got you want to be as proactive as possible. You don't have protection for midfield because I thought Henderson was awful. Um,
1: yeah, I, I thought he had a really really poor game. Yeah, it's, I, I, for. It's You know, I've said I do like Henderson, but not in that position. I don't think it suits him at all. I think he did have a particularly poor game against Palace. Uh, Just to to move it along, though, where do you stand on on Mane in this game? Then the the penalty incident, and then obviously the whole thing just before he was taken off with a handball. My personal view was it should have been a penalty. I, I felt he was fouled. He's his delayed reaction and ridiculous over exaggeration is probably what didn't get him the penalty really and potentially the the view of the, the referee being obscured. But you know, I, and I and I do feel that the you know, the Klopp even mentioned it in, in his interview afterwards that the, the officials had seen it at a half time. So I think it was in the referee's mind. I think he's seen that and thought, I shouldn't have booked him. Whether or not he felt it was a penalty or not a penalty, there was actual contact, so he shouldn't have booked him. And I think it's through seeing that and thinking that, that he's actually decided against booking him for the handball in the second half. Where, where, where do you stand on it?
0: That's likely. I also think it's... Uh, for me, the penalty wasn't necessarily a penalty because I think there is contact, but the fact that he does stay on his feet means that... I mean, it's, it's this, it's, again, it's the, the, the nuance and the slippery slope that is if there's contact, but they stay on their feet, but it was sufficient contact to have taken them over. Do, doesn't that still count as a penalty? Because it's the same foul. They're just choosing not to go over. Um, so in that case, maybe it was. I don't personally think there was sufficient contact to take him down. It was a trailing leg. I've seen them given. But uh, again, if it was given against us, you would have, we would have been quite furious. That being said, there have been penalties given against us that are, were exactly that. The dive is stupid. It's just, And you see it in footballers these days. They are hungry. They want to do everything. But Mane should have done a better job of kind of surmising the events before him. The fact that the defender who had just taken him out was now three metres behind the byline. He had two defenders around him maybe, but he could have easily taken that on his left and crossed it into Salah or Firmino, who was making a late run. It was one of those things where you can tell he's made a mistake, and his reaction afterwards to the to the booking was very much, a, uh, yeah, I cocked that up. Uh, that's my bad. I Whether or not the original contact was a penalty to me is still dubious, but I can see either way why it'd be given. The dive is just ridiculous. The handball technically should have sent him off, but I think if the ref had sent him off, he would have felt, like you said, almost uh, aggrieved because he had done Mane some sort of wrong there, because whether or not it's a penalty in the first half is dubious. The fact that it's possibly a penalty means there's no cause to, to book him for diving other than the fact that the linesman was flagging wildly and saying that's a dive. There was no contact. Fine. Then when, when Mane does what every player does, which is feel contact behind him, go down and grab the ball expecting a foul it would be extremely harsh to send him off for doing that. And, and in my opinion, the refs seen the contact said, I don't think that's a foul. Marnes grabbed the ball. And then I think there's part of him that says, actually, maybe that was a foul because it was a foul. They clatter into the back of him and he goes down, not of his own accord. So, there is enough contact to say, yeah, that's a foul. I, and when he, the referee walks over to the Palace players, he's saying, no, don't be ridiculous. It's not a second yellow. Go away. Go away from me. Um, the fact that Mane goes on, like, run, pretty much runs away and goes back to back to the keeper and back to the cluster of Liverpool players probably helps that. But I don't think the ref was going to send him off purely because he saw, okay, maybe that is a foul. Uh, so I was I was kind of wrong there. I don't think. I think the ref was smart to not send him off because it sets a dangerous precedent. It was an intentional handball, fine. But, and Martin maybe stayed on the pitch three minutes longer than he should have, fine. But at the same time, he could have had a penalty depending on your interpretation. And he probably should have been awarded a foul there. So really, you can't really begrudge the ref for doing what was sensible in the end. Mm.
1: Yeah. Um, one one talking point to cover from this month, then um, has been coverage of Emery Chan and his contract situation. I mean, re- reports coming through. I think originating from the the Liverpool Echo into the Mirror, talking about Shan wanting two hundred thousand pounds a week and and all the rest of it. Um, I highly doubt the validity of those claims. But um, again, it's it's more scrutiny on Shan, and he's he's come out via his Instagram account, I believe it was, to you know refute uh, what he called untrue rumours. So, uh, where do you stand on things? Do you do you think there's any chance that he does resign? Because it's it's we're we're past the 11th hour here, really, aren't we? On the, those 200k
0: a week rumours, it is absolutely ridiculous that newspapers and journalists complain about players giving them access and players not giving them interviews and players being too secretive and too and play too many mind games and whatever with their agents. And then they go out and pull us as something as stupid as that PR stunt. I'm not sure whether it originated from any of the head writers of the echo, but it absolutely shouldn't have because it was just ridiculous. There's no reason why you should come out and say what is essentially PR for the, for the club which is Embry-Chan wanted 200k a week while he's still here, while there's still a chance that he could sign. It's like, it's essentially shooting yourself in the foot when you're very much still able to run away. It's it, it, There is a chance that Emro chan could re-sign. Klopp said it himself that there, the talks are ongoing. Whether we believe that is up to your interpretation of how valid football managers' kind of words are in the press. James Castle, who, who reports for Italian football... Um, and does some stuff for the BBC says that Juventus haven't signed Jan yet. They're not even close to agreeing a deal with his representatives, which to me means that Jan is still tossing up between both options. If that's happening, then there's a chance Liverpool have offered him at least somewhere close to the money he wants, which means that the whole 200 K a week thing is a complete fabrication. Because if he did want 200 K a week, then Liverpool clearly would have said no, and then Juventus would have been able to come in and give him the money he did want. It's just, it's utterly ridiculous the journalists complain about about players not giving them the access that they want and then come out and do such ridiculous stuff like that. Um, as for chance staying, I think the writing's kind of on the wall now, but it's not beyond saving. Uh, I think it, it, it's kind of clear from the collated reports we got he wants more money in the region of kind of 120, 140K a week, which makes sense given Mil- that's what I, um, James Mild is on. Van Dyke is now the highest paid player at the club. Sala will probably get a new contract in the summer as will Firmino. Uh, collate all that together and you could say, okay, Emre Chan's our most important midfielder. He should be on that. I think the stickling point is the release clause, which we don't want to install for uh, reasons of kind of a, pre-existing sentiment that is we don't do release clauses they will bite us in the ass which is fair uh if you set the precedent of here's an 80 million release clause in a time where money is skyrocketing where Neymar had his perceived ludicrous release clause activated by a club funded by, by a country uh then you're all just kind of putting yourself already in a precarious position so I don't begrudge the club for not wanting to install a release clause. I don't know about you, Andy, but it just seems kind of a sensible precedent to set.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's all understandable. And I think through our all, whatever the outcome is, I think everybody just needs some closure on it. And then we yeah. need to come to a conclusion pretty soon. Cause I, I really don't want this one to just keep dragging and dragging and dragging. Cause it's, yeah, we, we're getting some things directed towards the player and, He's already strange. I mean, I I can't work it out myself. He seems to be a very divisive figure amongst some fans. I've never been able to work that one out personally, but there you go. It's equally
0: ridiculous that he does divide the fans that much because his strengths are clear, surely, for all to see, and his weaknesses aren't as considerably kind of pervasive as Jordan Henderson or James Milner, because James Milner isn't a natural centre midfielder. midfielder. Oh, don't begrudge him with that. He just isn't. And Jordan Henderson has been absolutely terrible for the last two or three seasons because it's not his position. I maintain this as long as I can talk. Henderson is a box-to-box midfielder whose body let him down. Uh, he was made captain because he was the, seen as the successor to Steven Gerrard and his pressing and his his action and his ability but Henderson is no longer that player. He may well be an excellent leader, which, to be fair, as every side needs, it's one of those intangibles. He does not warrant a place in Liverpool's starting lineup if we want to make it to the quarterfinals of the Champions League next season. Now, Emre Chan has been that starting midfielder this season, which is excellent. Why people seem to think he's it's we could just get away with losing him on a free and then have and saying Henderson's fine as backup, I don't understand. People who say people who say losing Emre is fine because we can just go and sign Indeedee as much as I love Ndidi don't understand that Emery, despite his defensive deficiencies, offers more than Indeedy does going forward. People who say the exact same with Jorginho don't understand that as good as Jorginho is going forward, Emre offers more defensively, he's more of a whole rounded, deep-lying midfielder, Jorginho is a creative player, indeed he is a defensive player, now what I'd do is go out, even despite the fact we're selling, we're losing Chan on a free, which is not very good business, we did conduct good business, at least in my point of view, selling Coutinho for 140 odd million euros, which to me is a, A freak number for someone who's surely not in the top five players in the world yet is the third most expensive player in football history. You go and spend the money from Coutinho on a viable and valid creative midfielder and then you spend it on Ndidi and then losing Emre Chan becomes less of a, oh crap, we need to replace Emre Chan and more of a progressive move of, okay, we lost Emre, but we're going to go a different direction, entirely reshape our midfield, and oh, look, here comes Naby Keita in the summer. And now <laughs> midfield is completely re-energised and re-injected. I don't think it's as simple as lose Emre, get Naby, because uh, we need still need a defensive midfielder, but there is going to be a lot of significant kind of change in the centre of the park this summer for Liverpool. I really, really wish there wasn't, but I think I, I think now... Um, with all the talk coming out of Juventus, they're very confident. It hasn't been done yet, but they're confident. uh, The writing is kind of on the wall. And and like you said, we just need closure at this point, because if we get closure, the topics become less whether we need Chan and more whether we need Jorginho and Didi, Neves, whoever we target.
1: And that's healthier
0: for the football club.
1: Yeah. Right. So moving on to our our, our awards, um, who won your goal of the month award for march
0: uh, well i mentioned it earlier that salah goal where he completely turned four players pure it's not necessarily the stylistically or aesthetically the best it's just defying what should happen and then for me that's just it's just incredible to see him defy what anyone expects to see him turn those four players finish so awkwardly and yet with such poise and then turn around and celebrate it was just oh, it was just awesome
1: yeah, and I've gone for the exact same one, yeah, for the same reasons as well. Uh, yeah, it's it really encapsulates uh, more Salah and, and how he's been for, for us this season. Um, what about player of the month?
0: Again, you can't really look past Salah. I will give a special mention to Andy Robinson, who's been phenomenal at left back. Um, I think he's... I love Alberto Moreno, but I think Robertson is undoubtedly the the number one left back as of right now. Uh, and, and also, he possesses kind of that forward thinking mentality, the real drive and the, the the tenacity that we've kind of lacked at fullback in recent years. Certainly, the antithesis of Glenn Johnson, which uh, is the highest compliment I could p- possibly pay to him. So,
1: yeah, I, I've I've got to agree. You know, it's it's a full house, clean sweep here. Um, Yeah, special mention to Robertson, who's been very, very good, very consistent this season. And and just on Salah, there was a quote from Klopp after the Newcastle game, actually, uh, on Salah. And it was, I love the goals he scored. I love his assists. I love this player. And I think that just, for me, that that just beautifully sums up more Salah for for Liverpool this season. This month is just, he's been magnificent. He really, really has.
0: Yeah, it encapsulates the whole fan base, doesn't it? The, the fact that we signed him and he's exploded, but also the fact that he does it so effortlessly, effortlessly rather, and you can't see it slowing down because the system benefits him so much. It's not like this is a freak season. It's not. People used to say about Harry Kane, oh, it's just a one season wonder. How is he gonna? How's he gonna replicate this next season? You look at the goals he scored, and you just say, what are you talking about? Spurs, were are gonna play the exact same way. He's gonna do the exact same moves. Same with Salah. He'll do the exact same moves. He'll be just as dangerous. Defenders won't be able to stop him. Um, And that's what
1: makes it so exciting to have this absolute (laughs) god. He's he's, he's fantastic. He really is. Right, it's quiz time now then. It's the this month from when quiz. So there's five questions. I'll say what's happened in this month. And you just have to give me the... uh, um, I hope you, I hope
0: you've catered this to the fact that I am a young Liverpool fan, and if you give me something from 1984, I'm gonna feel very very maltreated.
1: I, I have been fairly generous. I, I mean, okay. I will I, I will preempt this with um, Dave Hendrick kind of smashed my quiz to bits last month and got five <laughs> out of five. I was oh, even yes. answering questions before I'd finished asking them. But okay, anyway. I'll try I'll try
0: my best to to <laughs> completely begrudgingly uh get somewhere near five out of five the reality is i'll probably get zero out of five because i'm rubbish (laughs) quizzes but i'm ready
1: okay first one then it was in march that liverpool beat man united 2-0 to win the league cup but what was the year and stephen gerrard scored as well by the way
0: already being stretched for memory here I think, was it, when was the last time we won the League Cup? Under Dale Gleish. Yeah, was it 2011?
1: Ooh, wrong one. Wrong one. I,
0: so it was <laughs> the one before that.
1: Yeah, It was 2003.
0: That was it. I was uh, six.
1: It, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my fault you were born too late. From,
0: yeah, exactly. You're just abusing me for being young. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: I'll give you a clue. This one's a little bit further back, but uh, let's see. You might know about it anyway. So, incredibly, Liverpool defeated Newcastle four three at Anfield. Two seasons running, for you know, for two consecutive seasons. The first meeting is the more famous one, but the second one took place in March of which year? Um.
0: Okay. Defeat. First one was. Fowler. Yeah. So. Me. I'm looking at no, I'm looking at around the time I was born. In fact, probably before that. I really want to say like 95. <sighs> I have a feeling I'm too in late. The
1: wrong way 97. The first one was in 96. Oh! It was. yeah uh, yep. So this yep. the one in question was 97. So 96 and in 97, two consecutive seasons we beat them 4-3 at Anfield. Incredible. So I've uh,
0: watched thought, both those games, which makes yeah. the fact that I got that question. Wrong. Even worse, but yes.
1: <laughs> right, third one then. March was also the month when the the then Liverpool manager Gerard Houllier made his emotional return to Anfield for a Champions League tie against Roma. But can you name the year?
0: Uh, can I? Can I get a hint?
1: <laughs> was
0: this was this a year that the Champions League?
1: group stage Liverpool
0: went out no
1: actually this was in March okay. so it was into the, the knockout yeah. stages yeah so. we were at the knockout stages yeah 2004 oh you close it was 2002
0: oh, okay it was earlier than that
1: yeah yeah okay, okay fair enough. this one might be better for you then yeah um, another Champions League fixture took place in March when with Liverpool losing 1-0 at home to Barcelona but they went through on away goals and do you remember the 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 away tie where the Liverpool won two one in the new camp was the whole um, Bellamy and what's his face? Um Risa with the uh, the golf clubs and all that. Can you name the uh, yeah?
0: I know the story. I also know Craig Bellamy was a, a very strange Strange Liverpool player to have because he was so, he was so ferocious and yet he wasn't a scouser. Uh, okay, it was definitely after two thousand six. I don't I don't think we were in the Champions League in eight nine. Where were we? So two thousand and seven. It
1: was yes. Yeah, nice one. I got you got one? one right. At least you at least you're not going to go home with the uh, the wooden sperm. So Thank last Christ. one then is a dirt Cout hat trick, fired Liverpool to a three one victory. Over Man United in March of which year? Uh, that's a good question. I remember the kit, the grey kit, 2010. Oh, you're one year out. It was actually 2011. Ah, uh, was that Doug so Leash? It was, yes. Oh well, Luis Suarez did that <laughs> that, that amazing run before setting up that's Dirk right. out from like one yep. yard out. All-
0: all three goals were inside the six-yard box, if I do remember correctly.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. That was that was the classic Dirk count special. <laughs> so at least you got one right, anyway.
0: I got one. I'm not going home empty handed. I, I like that. <laughs> I'll take on Dave Hendrick anytime.
1: All <laughs> <laughs> right, um, let's let's look ahead to April's fixtures. Then uh, win, lose or draw. First one up, obviously. I mean, it's it's the big the big one. It's the Champions League. Uh, we're at home to Man City. How, how do you see this one going then? Win, lose or draw Man City Champions League on um, Wednesday night?
0: I say, I think it's going to be a draw. I think it's going to be a score draw. How well we keep it down may kind of affect what we do with the second leg. I think we're going to be better at the Etihad than a lot of people are going to give us credit for. Uh, that. The first game will always be brought up, given the 5-0 score, but we are a more mature team now. We also will have 11 players on the pitch, touch wood, uh, and there's certainly going to be a, an awe around the AD had that's going to be nervous if City don't win at Anfield. I think the Anfield crowd is going to be up and Adams for it, fair enough, but City are going to come into this game knowing that this is it, this is the top the toughest game of their season so far. So I just think they're going to come up to the occasion. 2-2, two two, I reckon.
1: Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say we're going to sneak a win there. I think it might be a tight one, though. Uh, next up is the Saturday that squeezes in be- the sandwiches uh, in between them. It's um, away to Everton. Merseyside derby right in between the Champions League tie. Uh, how, how do you see this one going? A uh, win, I think. I don't think we
0: would be yeah. complicit enough to... Uh, kind of drop a Merseyside derby despite the fact it's sandwiched by City uh I also think this could be the game that breaks the camel's back with Allardyce um he is just an extremely unpopular man across Stanley Park right now for good reason he's awful so I think uh I win
1: I- I'm gonna say a draw in this one um and I think we can afford to take a draw in it as well uh next up then is as we said you know the other part of the sandwich it's Man City away at second leg of the Champions League uh, on the Tuesday the 10th. Um, win, lose or draw on this one, do you think? I've
0: Somewhat <laughs> interestingly, I, I think it's going to be a win. Uh, I think we're going to go to the Etihad and we'll scalp a 2-1, a 3-2. Certainly won't be 1-0. I don't think either tie is going to end with a nil on either either number. But I think the Etihad is actually where we could uh, fight real hard, especially if it's draw at Anfield, we'll have something to prove. And again, I think the atmosphere of the Etihad could be conducive to a really good Liverpool performance. So yeah, I'm going to go win.
1: I'm going to say defeat in that one. So a win at home, lose a weight, and then it's all going to be down to whatever the goals are. And I find it hard to kind of pick, uh, yeah, pick either way it just uh, yeah. up in the air. yeah, yeah I, i'm gonna have about five years took off my life in the <laughs> over the next uh, week and a half but there you go um after that then uh saturday the 14th we're at home to bournemouth in the premier league um what's your thoughts on this then win lose or draw uh
0: at home means that it's going to be uh, a much more convincing victory than i would have tipped before and the the worry is obviously fatigue from City, and if someone gets injured, um, it was like you said, touch wood. This side's been very lucky with the injuries. If one of those front three get injured, it's going to be very very tricky run home. Uh, even with Chelsea's loss overnight, kind of bolstering our top four chances, win. It's home, so it won't be the banana peel that was the four three last season. Uh, yeah, I think convincing win.
1: Yeah, I I think it's going to be a win as well. Uh, after that, following weekend, we're away at West Brom, who no longer have Alan Pardew in charge, um, win, lose or draw for that one?
0: Thank God, thank goodness they sacked him now, if they'd sacked him just before we faced them, it wouldn't have been the most classically Liverpool thing ever, to lose to a team, like that's rock bottom at the Premier League table, has their caretaker manager, and oh no, that's Craig Dawson at the double, we lose 2-1, um, I think win, again, pretty convincingly, West Brom will likely, be relegated by that point as well, given current form and given how tight it is uh, for that that third spot. I think Stoke will probably go down as well, but um, yeah, win again pretty convincingly. I think.
1: Yeah, I do think we'll win this game, and and I, just to uh, preempt you there, I, I think we're going to finish the the month with three consecutive wins because last game of the month uh, is at home on Saturday the twenty eighth. We're at home to Stoke. So, um, what, what about yourself? How do you feel, win, lose or draw for that one at Hunter Stoke?
0: Yeah, when uh, they don't have a good record at Anfield, they could well be down again, just like West Brom, depending on their fixtures. Um, it's good that we play West Brom and Stoke late, uh, because if we were facing West Ham or Southampton or Huddersfield or even someone as high as Newcastle, who may be kind of looking below them and teetering on the edge, we would have had a real scrap on our hands when it comes to West Brom and Stoke. I think we're more likely to be uh, a controlling, convincing beast that we've seen this season. The kind of performance we've seen against Watford, hopefully not the one we saw against Palace. Um, but yeah, I think another win. And again, it's good that we've got West Brom and Stoke so late on.
1: Yeah, we we could actually be a team that uh, relegates two other clubs at the end of this month. Quite it's quite feasible. So um, yeah, so I guess for for some people uh, based on the, some of the experiences with those clubs in recent uh, times. Yeah, I think... I think be that, that. Yes,
0: <laughs> indeed. I think, although I think Alan Pardew has to take a fair bit of responsibility for West Brom. Like
1: Absolutely, that. yeah. Okay, so uh, as is tradition this uh, this season, um, the guests get the final words on this podcast. So, Alex, can you sum up the month of March for Liverpool in five words? Uh, I was teetering
0: on a lot of different combinations here but I do think I only need four which is unclassically Liverpool Football Club because we seem to always have roller coasters and this was very much a nice comfortable cruise control
1: ride and there you have it uh, thanks to Alex Barilaro uh, thanks to all of you for listening that's it for for the uh, the race review for this month we'll be back next month but until then from me Andy Wills, it's Bob know.